Chapter 8 on the distinction between true and false visions. Hey there, what's up? How are you? This is the show with Joe. Hey there, how you doing today? This is the show with Joe. I hope you're doing all right now, because this is the show with Joe. Enjoy this podcast, homies. Welcome to the show with Joe. Oh, yeah. What the hell is wrong with you? Carl Sagan starts this chapter off by talking about experiences he had throughout his life where he was generally unsure what to do about something he might have seen or heard. And he's kind of referencing times where you're maybe in a dark place and you hear a bang somewhere and you're not sure what it is and maybe you see some image and I'm going kind of further than I have to here but the idea that he's just trying to convey is that a lot of people experience things that seem strange and he kind of just says don't be gullible uh, and don't be a, a credulous person he quotes Samuel Butler uh, who wrote this in 1667 a credulous mind finds most delight in believing strange things and the stranger they are the easier they pass with him but never regards those that are plain and feasible for every man can believe such so in a way like for an example if you were you know getting up late at night and you saw what you thought was a ghost an apparition of sorts a, a glimmer of white light in a spot where it shouldn't have been but for some reason the your brain which is really good at pattern recognizing sees something but really it's just a glimmer of light and you're just kind of you don't want to say that it's something plain and simple um, he's kind of just saying that a gullible mind, someone who kind of prefers to believe in seeing strange things, might see that apparition, what they would call it, as something that was true. And and he might uh, confess it with other people and say, hey, I saw this thing. And, and if you're in the right tribe or the right society, they might allow that to, to be something that comes to fruition. Like, oh, my God, there was a ghost here. There must be a ghost in that house. It's haunted, et cetera, et cetera. And these are just this is just an example that I'm coming up with, not something that Carl Sagan comes up with in a book, but to give you the gist of the first little part of the chapter, he's going and talking about that kind of thing, where in some cases you seeing an apparition or some sort of weird thing that shouldn't have been there that is strange and can't be explained by science or practical means. Um, in some societies, that could be something that we accept and love and cherish and. And even authority, authoritative persons might use it to gain themselves something. But we'll learn a little bit more as we go on here. I'm going to go on and quote um, his very interesting excerpt here about how easy it is as human beings to just make shit up, especially our memories. And this should be kind of quite alarming in, in general because, I mean, I know personally I've had plenty of times in my life where I thought something happened one way and then get told later, no, that happened this way. You were totally wrong. And then all of a sudden we're at a conflict of what the hell actually happened. And the further away you get from that experience, the more convoluted it gets and maybe even the more exaggerated it gets. So let's go. Carl Sagan says, The University of Washington Psychologist Elizabeth Loftus has found that unhypnotized subjects can easily be made to believe they saw something they didn't. In a typical experiment, subjects will view a film of a car accident. 
in the course of being questioned about what they saw, they're casually given false information. For example, a stop sign is offhandedly referred to, although there wasn't one in the film. Many subjects then dutifully recall seeing a stop sign. When the deception is revealed, some vehemently protest, stressing how vividly they remember the sign. The greater the time lag between viewing the film and being given the false information, the more people allow their memories to be tampered with. Loftus argues that memories of an event more closely resemble a story undergoing constant revision than a packet of pristine information. And now if you take this quote from Carl Sagan's book and you think about what just happened in America, you know, people reaching the Capitol, etc., etc., and all of the outcry and all of the crazy shit that's going on on both sides of the uh, political aisles, um, if you go on any of the online forums that you could find, you'll see, you know, one side saying all these things and the other side saying all these things. And not to get too political, but the whole they're, they're pretty much revising what actually happened in a way they're taking what happened in that event and putting their own little message in there and making it what they think it is and i'm not saying anything about the politics of the matter but i'm just saying you can take that event and think about it and think about the people who are saying something about it in one way and something about it another way and you know if you get outside of your echo chamber of whether you're on the left or the right or if you're in the middle you might see a little bit of both or if you lean one way, you might see one too much and one not enough. But you'll see people revising what actually happened. Uh, you know, I mean, the right is saying that Antifa is the one that, you know, caused all these problems. And then the left is saying, you know, no, Antifa wasn't even there. And here's my evidence. And both sides are saying similar things in a way. But in a way that's kind of dangerous because I don't know how much you know, we're hitting at the truth and just saying, hey, here's what happened. The Capitol was breached. Fuck, the the world's on fire. And then you turn on the news and you listen to all the politicians and they're all putting their own spin on things. Um, although right now it was overwhelmingly that it was kind of a terrible thing that happened. But anyway, let's go on. I didn't mean to actually get into that and I did anyway. So fuck, it's the times, man. All right. To continue from that excerpt, Carl Sagan goes on. There are many other examples. Some, a spurious memory of being lost as a child in a shopping mall, for instance, of greater emotional impact. Once the key idea is suggested, the patient often plausibly fleshes out the supporting details. Lucid but wholly false recollections can easily be induced by a few cues and questions, especially in the therapeutic setting. Memory can be contaminated. False memories can be implanted even in minds that do not consider themselves vulnerable and uncritical. Stephen Sessy of Cornell University, Loftus, and their colleagues have found, unsurprisingly, that preschoolers are exceptionally vulnerable to suggestion. The child who, when first asked, correctly denies having caught his hand in a mousetrap later remembers the event in vivid, self-generated detail. When more directly told about, quote, some things that happened to you when you were little, over time, they easily enough assent to the implanted memories. Professionals watching videotapes of the children can do no better than chance in distinguishing false memories from true ones. Is there any reason to think that adults are wholly immune to the fallibilities exhibited by children? And to go on, this is a familiar uh, paragraph right here. Quoting Carl. 
President Ronald Reagan, who spent World War II in Hollywood, vividly described his own role in liberating Nazi concentration camp victims. Living in the film world, he apparently confused a movie he had seen with a reality he had not. On many occasions in his presidential campaigns, Mr. Reagan told an epic story of World War II, courage, and sacrifice, an inspiration for all of us. Only it never happened. It was the plot to a movie, A Wing and a Prayer, that made quite an impression on me, too, when I saw it at age nine. Many other instances of this sort can be found in Reagan's public statements. It is not hard to imagine serious public dangers emerging out of instances in which political, military, scientific, or religious leaders are unable to distinguish fact from vivid fiction. And to go on, in preparing for courtroom testimony, witnesses are coached by their lawyers. Often they are made to repeat the story over and over again until they get it, quote, right. Then on the stand, what they remember is the story they've been telling in the lawyer's office. The nuances have been shaded, or it may no longer correspond, even in its major features, to what really happened. Conveniently, the witnesses may have forgotten that their memories were reprocessed. These facts are relevant in evaluating the societal effects of advertising and of national propaganda. But here they suggest that on alien abduction matters, where interviews typically take place years after the alleged event, therapists must be very careful that they do not accidentally implant or select the stories they elicit. Perhaps what we actually remember is a set of memory fragments stitched onto a fabric of our own devising. If we sew cleverly enough, we have made ourselves a memorable story easy to recall. Fragments by themselves, unencumbered by association, are harder to retrieve. The situation is rather like the method of science itself, where many isolated data points can be remembered, summarized, and explained in the framework of a theory. We then much more easily recall the theory and not the data. In science, the theories are always being reassessed and confronted with new facts. If the facts are seriously discordant, beyond the error bars, the theory may have to be revised. But in everyday life, it is very rare that we are confronted with new facts about events of long ago. Our memories are almost never challenged. They can instead be frozen in place, no matter how flawed they are, or become a work in continual artistic revision. Now that, just take that all that in and think about current events and even previous events and how much of it may have been revised in your own memory of them. You know, 9-11, for instance. Jet fuels don't melt steel beams! Kind of stuff. You see all these revisionists. People are always trying to change what the actual event was or how it came about. You know, you start off with the facts. Oh, the, the 9-11 towers were blown up by planes, by terrorists, and then all of a sudden... The government did it, and it was an inside job. I mean, totally, that's not something I believe, but I'm just saying that that's one one example of kind of what's going on and what he's talking about, how we can take memories of events in our lives, for instance, and, and just forget the actual facts of the matter. But anyway, to go on, Carl Sagan starts talking about Mary, the mother of God. Not the real one, but fake ones throughout history. People who have become them quote-unquote. 
in order to gain means for themselves or, you know, for whatever other reason. We kind of go over a little bit here. So I'm going to go on with Carl Sagan because his words are much more powerful than mine. So here we go. In a typical case, a rural woman or child reports encountering a girl or an oddly tiny woman, perhaps three or four feet tall, who reveals herself to be the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. She requests the awestruck witness to go to the village fathers or the local church authorities and order them to say prayers for the dead or obey the commandments or build a shrine at this very spot in the countryside. If they do not comply, dire penalties are threatened. Perhaps the plague. Alternatively, in plague-infested times, Mary promises to cure the disease, but only if her request is satisfied. And so I'm going to backtrack here for a second because I forgot. It's not actually about someone who is Virgin Mary, the mother of God, but it's about people who believe they saw her. Um, an apparition of sorts or a waking dream, you know, if you're too tired, like we talked about in previous chapters. You can dream waking and see things that aren't actually there. But anyway, and take note that this stuff is pretty close to what we've been talking about with alien abduction stories. So... To go on, Carl says, The witness tries to do as she is told, but when she informs her father or husband or priest, she is ordered to repeat the story to no one. It is mere female foolishness or frivolity or demonic hallucination. So she keeps quiet. Days later, she is confronted again by Mary, a little put out that her request has not been honored. They will not believe me, the witness complains. Give me a sign. Evidence is needed. So Mary, who seems to have had no foreknowledge that evidence would have to be provided, provides a sign. The villagers and priests are promptly convinced. A shrine is built. Miraculous cures occur in its vicinity. Pilgrims come far and wide. Priests are busy. The economy of the region booms. The original witness is appointed keeper of the sacred shine. In most of the cases we know of, there was a commission of inquiry comprised of leaders civic and ecclesiastic who attested to the genuineness of the apparition. Despite initial almost exclusively male skepticism, but the standards of evidence were not generally high. In one case, the testimony of a delirious eight-year-old boy taken two days before his death from plague was soberly accepted. Some of these commissions deliberated decades or even a century after the event. And on the distinction between true and false visions... Haha, <laughs> that's the title of this chapter, Carl Sagan. Are you in, like, film class or something? Anyway, don't know why I said that. To go on, an expert on the subject, Jean Gerson, in around 1400, summarized the criteria for recognizing a credible witness of an apparition. One was the willingness to accept advice from the political and religious hierarchy. Thus, anyone seeing a vision disturbing to those in power was ipso facto an unreliable witness, and saints and virgins could be made to say whatever the authorities wanted to hear. So, when you hear that, it kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? You can't see an apparition, and for it to be actually accepted unless the political and religious hierarchy agrees with it. Doesn't that sound kind of odd? Maybe sort of a, a power control that they're using? I don't know. Let's go on. Possible motives for inventing and accepting such stories are not hard to find. Jobs for priests, notaries, carpenters, and merchants, and other boosts to the regional economy in a time of depression. 
augmented social status of the witness and her family. Prayers, once again offered for relatives buried in graveyards, later abandoned because of plague, drought, and war. Rousing public spirit against enemies, especially Moors. Improving civility and obedience to canon law. And confirming the faith of the pious. The fervor of pilgrims in such shrines was impressive. It was not uncommon for rock scrapings or dirt from the shrine to be mixed with water and drunk as medicine. But I'm not suggesting that most witnesses made the whole business up. Something else was going on. It is natural to suspect that many, perhaps all, of these apparitions were a species of dream. Waking or sleeping, compounded by hoaxes and by forgeries, there was a thriving business in contrived miracles, religious paintings, and statues dug up by accident or divine command. Quite interesting. To go on, a 1517 papal bull distinguishes between apparitions that appear in dreams or divinely. Clearly, the secular and ecclesiastical authorities, even in times of extreme credulity, were alert to the possibilities of hopes and delusion. So yeah, it's quite interesting that all of these apparitions were happening and those that were accepting them, you know, obviously knew there was some sort of delusions or some sort of hoaxes going on because not all of them could be right because that would mean that you could probably just lie about what Mary, the mother of God, said to you and people would have to believe it. That doesn't sound right. So they have to kind of come up with a way to say, hey, these are the ones that are right. And this is how you figure out whether they're right. Okay? And so, what kind of happens here is they kind of own what apparitions are, are good and helpful for the Catholic Church, for instance, and which ones aren't. And so when they aren't, uh, we kind of just dispel them and say, oh, you're just crazy. Um, so it's, you would think that it would be easier to just say, none of them are true. It's easier to just believe the Catholic Church and what we have to say because apparitions are just not a good thing unless you know it helps you so it's kind of kind of interesting that they pick and choose um, what apparitions are good and what apparitions are bad but to go on with Carl Sagan nevertheless in most of medieval Europe such apparitions were greeted warmly by the Roman Catholic clergy especially because the Marian admonitions were so congenial to the priesthood a pathetic few signs of evidence, a stone or a footprint, and never anything unfakeable sufficed. But beginning in the 15th century, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, the attitude of the church changed. Those who reported an independent channel to heaven were outflanking the church's chain of command up to God. Moreover, a few of the apparitions, Jean d'Arcs, for example, had awkward political or moral implications. The perils represented by Janine d'Arc's visions were described by her inquisitors in 1431 in these words. Quote, well, we're all quoting right now. I'm just kind of reading this to you at this point. The great danger was shown to her that comes of someone so presumptuous to believe that they have such apparitions and revelations and therefore lie about matters concerning God, giving out false prophecies and divinations not known from God, but invented from which could follow the seduction of peoples, the inception of new sects, and many other impieties that subvert the church and Catholics. Both Jean d'Arc and Girolamo Savonarola were burnt at the stake for their visions. 
So there you go. You know, you don't don't agree with the Catholic Church, and we're gonna burn you. <laughs> we don't want any other sex happening because that's not good for the Catholic Church. We don't want our our members to go away and go find a place that might be a little more normal. Anyway, to go on. In fifteen sixteen, the fifth Lateran I might not be saying things right, so just ignore my shitty me trying to read shit. In 1516, the Fifth Lateran Council reserved to the Apostolic Seat the right to examine the authenticity of apparitions. For poor peasants whose visions had no political content, the punishments fell short of the ultimate severity. The Marian apparition seen by Francisca La Brava, a young mother, was described by Licenciado Mariana, the Lord Inquisitor, as, quote, to the detriment of our holy Catholic faith and the diminution of its authority. Her apparition was all vanity and frivolity. By rights, we could have treated her more rigorously. The Inquisitor continued. But in deference to certain just reasons that move us to mitigate the rigor of the sentences we decree as a punishment to Francisca La Brava and an example to others not to attempt similar things that we condemn her to be put on an ass, I'm assuming a donkey, and given 100 lashes in public through the accustomed streets of Belmonte, naked from the waist up, and the same number in the town of El Quintanar, El Quintanar, in the same manner. And that from now on she not say or affirm in public or secretly, by word of insinuation, the things she said in her confessions, or else she will be prosecuted as an impenitent, and who does not believe in or agree with what is in our holy Catholic faith. So it sounds like this person went to a priest and said, Hey, I had this crazy vision. Can you explain it to me? And in return, he says, 200 lashes to you in two different towns with your bare back. And if you speak a word of this to anybody else, well, you're going to be screwed pretty much. So, oof. Despite the penalties, it is striking how often the witness stuck to her guns and... Ignoring the encouragements offered her to confess that she was lying or dreaming or confused, insisted that she really and truly had seen this vision. Which is probably not a good thing for her. I don't think things might not have ended well for her. But to go on with Carl Sagan, he says, Why are admonitions so prosaic? Why is a vision of so illustrious a personage of the Mother of God necessary so, in a tiny county populated by a few thousand souls, a shrine will be prepared or the populace will refrain from cursing why not important and prophetic messages whose significance could be recognized in later years as something that could be that could have emanated only from god or from the saints wouldn't this have greatly enhanced the catholic cause and its mortal struggle with protestantism and the enlightenment but we have no apparitions cautioning the church against say accepting the delusion of an earth-centered universe or warning it of complicity with Nazi Germany, two matters of considerable moral as well as historical import, on which Pope John Paul II, to his credit, has admitted that the Church had erred. Not a single saint criticized the practice of torturing and burning witches and heretics. Why not? Were they unaware of what was going on? Could they not grasp its evil? And leaving from Carl Sagan... Or were they just trying to hold power over others? Crazy. But to go on, I think I can see many parallels 
between Marian apparitions and alien abductions. Even though the witnesses in the former cases are not promptly taken to heaven and don't have their reproductive organs meddled with, the beings reported are diminutive, most often about two and a half to four feet tall. They come from the sky. The content of the communication is, despite its purported celestial origin, mundane. There seems to be a clear connection with sleep and dreams. The witnesses, often females, are troubled about speaking out especially after encountering ridicule from males in positions of authority. Nevertheless, they persist. They really saw such a thing. They insist. Means of conveying the stories exist. They are eagerly discussed, permitting details to be coordinated even among witnesses who have never met one another. Others present at the time and place of the apparition see nothing unusual. Their purported signs or evidence are, without exception, Nothing that humans couldn't acquire or fabricate on their own. Indeed, Mary seems unsympathetic to the need for evidence, and occasionally is willing to cure only those who had believed the account of her apparition before she supplied the signs. And while there are no therapists per se, the society is suffused by a network of influential parish priests and their hierarchical superiors who have a vested interest in the reality of the visions. In our time, there are still apparitions of Mary and other angels, but also, as summarized by G. Scott Sparrow, a psychotherapist and hypnotist of Jesus, in I Am With You Always, The True Stories of Encounters with Jesus, 1995, by Bantam, first-hand accounts, some moving, some banal, of such encounters are laid out. Oddly, most of them are straightforward dreams, acknowledged as such, and the ones called visions are said to differ from dreams only because we experience them while we are awake. But for Sparrow, judging something only a dream does not compromise its external reality. For Sparrow, any being you dream of, and any incident, really exists in the world outside your head. He specifically denies that dreams are purely subjective. Evidence doesn't enter into it. If you dreamt it, if it felt good, if it elicited wonder, why then it really happened. There's not a skeptical bone in Sparrow's body. When Jesus tells a conflicted woman in an intolerable marriage to throw the bum out, Sparrow admits that this poses problems for, quote, advocates of a scripturally consistent position. In that case, ultimately, perhaps, one could say that virtually all presumed guidance is generated from within. What if someone reported a dream in which Jesus counseled, say, abortion or vengeance? And if indeed somewhere, somehow, we must eventually draw the line and conclude that some dreams are invented by the dreamer, why not all? That's harking back to what I said earlier, that why not make, why not say all dreams are not real so that you can not have to pick and choose and be weird about things and give people lashes for dreaming you freaking dumb humans but anyway let's close this chapter out i only have a couple paragraphs to read here and we're brought to you by nobody again because i am not that popular so let's go carl sagan why would people invent abduction stories why would people appear on tv audience participation programs devoted to sexual humiliation of the guests the current rage in America's video wasteland. 
Discovering that you're an alien abductee is at least a break from the routine of everyday life. You gain the attention of peers, therapists, maybe even the media. There is a sense of discovery, exhilaration, awe. What will you remember next? You begin to believe that you may be the harbinger, or even the instrument of momentous events now rolling towards us. And you don't want to disappoint your therapist. You crave his or her approval. I think there can very well be psychic rewards in becoming an abductee. For comparison, consider product tampering cases, which convey very little of the sense of wonder that surrounds UFOs and alien abductions. Someone claims to find a hypodermic syringe in a popular soft drink can. Understandably, this is upsetting. It's reported in newspapers and especially on TV news. Soon there's a spate, a virtual epidemic of similar reports from all over the country, but it's very hard to see how a hypodermic syringe could get into a can at the factory, and in none of the cases are witnesses present with an intact can is opened and a syringe discovered inside. Slowly, the evidence accumulates that this is a copycat crime. People have only pretended to find syringes in soft drink cans. Why would anyone do it? What possible motives could they have? Some psychiatrists say that the primary motives are greed. They'll sue the manufacturer for damages, a craving for attention, and a wish to be portrayed as a victim. Note there are no therapists touting the reality of needles and cans and urging their patients, subtly or directly, to go public with the news. Also, serious penalties are levied for product tampering, and even for falsely alleging that products have been tampered with. In contrast, there are therapists who encourage abductees to tell their stories to mass audiences. And no legal penalties are exacted for falsely claiming you've been abducted by a UFO. Whatever your reason for going down this road, how much more satisfying it must be to convince others that you've been chosen by higher beings for their own enigmatic purpose than that by mere happenstance you've found a hypodermic syringe in your cola. And that ends the chapter. I remember a while ago uh, seeing reports of a dead rat in the bottom of a monster can or a mouse, something like that. And I thought, what the hell is this shit? This must not be real. And I don't think it was, but... That's that's a, an example that happened, I don't even know, maybe a decade ago. And I think I, I saw a similar thing. But anyway, there it is. Enjoy the rest of your day.